Welcome to episode 44 of the Champagne Comedy Podcast, where we talk about the best Australian comedy show from the 90s ever made, Frontline and other degeneration comedy tidbits. My name is Matt, and joining this podcast today is Alison, Daniel, Kim and Tony. Well, we're minus proof, but we do have Tony, so that's good enough. A bad trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> you were ripped off bad. <laughs> Not feedback, just more or less news and what's been going on and so forth. What we would usually publish on champagnecomedy.com when it decides to work. Nudge, nudge, we get Kim. Yep. <laughs> so, it's back yeah, online so now. So if the site ever goes down or there's a delay in posts or articles or whatever, we blame the server. Simple it's it's under new management. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> constantly. So uh, even though the last thing... I th- Under constant management. Yeah, constant management. management. But I don't know if you've been watching any free-to-air TV of late, um, but uh, and that's always a questionable statement. If you saw Tony Martin on The 100 with Andy Lee during the week as well, he was on there with Hamish Blake and Sophie Monk. And the funny thing is, right now, this is the dedication that we have to this podcast. Uh, at the time that this episode is currently recording, Tony is on stage. Now, I'm based in Sydney, Kim's based in Sydney, and Tony Martin's actually performing with Bob Franklin on stage in Hornsby, roughly an hour away from where we are right now. <laughs> yep, it's only about an hour away. Well, I'm kind of in the middle of where he was going to go on in Wollongong. And- Same here. So there we go. That's commitment. But, yeah, he was on the 100 with Andy, Andy Lee. And here's a snippet. What percent of the 100 have been arrested? Just 1%, Tony. Well, I, I just went from my own life, and I do obviously mix in quite nerdish circles, but the only person I know who was ever arrested is a, a bloke who was uh, selling illegal copies of the first series of Underbelly out of the boot of his car at <laughs> pub car park. That was a thing for a while, wasn't it? That was probably the funniest bit. <laughs> The amazing thing, spoiler alert, is that Tony won the episode. Yeah. And well, was... I haven't had that's, a chance that's, to that's, catch that's it That's very out of character for Tony. But very much in character for The 100, which is a show I still can't quite figure out what the point is, apart from a giant wall of faces. It's like an extended version of, you know, the beginning of the Family Feud, where we've, yeah. we surveyed the audience and then they've just expanded on that. Yeah, it's like, you know... We've, we surveyed 100 people and here they are. Like, <laughs> yeah, we always wondered who they were. They were just a wall of people all these years. Yeah. It's just sort of every time I tune in, it's like there's just a wall of people watching them and it's just kind of creepy and dystopian and it's like, yeah, I'm not laughing at this. Goodbye. <laughs> I think we've cracked it. I think we've cracked why that show is successful because of that. So it's uh, the family feud before it becomes feud. Much as the Fast and the Furious movies have taught us, it's all about family. <laughs> Another appearance was Mick Malloy, and that was with the Russell Gilbert show, or the best of Russell Gilbert show that was on Channel 7, originally broadcast on Channel 9 all those years ago. So it was a two episodes. As we mentioned previously, it was a clip show of... Seven episodes of the Russell Gilbert show and Mick being friends with Russell Gilbert. This is a snippet from the 1997 pilot episode, really. Hi, and welcome to The Ordinary. 
the program that looks at supernatural encounters, mysterious occurrences, and unexplained phenomenons. <laughs> Funny man Mick Malloy tells of his frightening brush with fate. Well, I was going on holiday with two of my mates to Bali, and we got to the airport and we checked our luggage in, and just as we were about to get on the plane, I had this, this very strong feeling, this premonition that, that something was going to go horribly wrong, and I tried to talk them into not getting on the plane, but, well, they did. And they died in a plane crash? No, no, they're in Bali having a great time. <laughs> Send me a postcard. I did watch that. There were, yeah, there were quite a lot of uh, young comedians in there. A very young Marty Sheargold featured in a couple of sketches as well. Yeah, blast from the past, that one. Mike Myers, the American actor, was in... The uh, a Canadian... Before. Canadian, yes, my mistake. Let's 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 not have the US own him. It's it's like it's like us. <laughs> it's far enough. If you look for my house, they're far enough away that it's one and the same. Pedantry. No, no, it's fine. I I agree. It, he is Canadian. I mean, his recent Netflix series very much proves his Canadian chops. I think he, he was over here in his status as an honorary American. <laughs> well saved. But he was actually out in Australia to promote, this is how dated the show is, Austin Powers. Well, yeah, because the first one notoriously didn't do well in cinemas and it took kind of home video for it to be a success. Uh, the, the only thing I, I just wanted to mention really quickly uh, is I noticed uh, that on the Working Dog Productions YouTube channel, they had a clip from uh, The Late Show uh, with Tim Watson doing the AFL, uh, the grooming school for AFL footballers. And I did notice that it wasn't the same little excerpt that comes from the best of. Yes. So, like, if, if there was a bit that, that you wouldn't have seen uh, from, from the best of. So it does genuinely look like they've digitised the tapes and they're going through it, pushing aside all the questionable news-based content probably. And hopefully we might see a bit of stuff that's not just on the best ofs. Fingers crossed. I will say that when they did post up the Oz Brothers... They did remove out the blooper of Neville saying border. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, one of the, one of them uh, cracking a bit. Yeah. yeah, instead of saying Booney, he goes border. Stick to the script, Neville. So I think I think they are, they are still relying on on the best odds for, for some stuff, but not all of it. So some really promising stuff. I'm hoping that maybe later on they might uh, move on to some of the old hours and hours of the panel. There must be some really interesting stuff that we can watch. That's not reliant on one of the, the guests passing away in order for us to see it on their YouTube channel. Good point. Oh, Jesus! It's Daniel Genie's program guide. <laughs> All right, so this isn't so much the program guide, but this is looking uh, in uh, the, uh, the previous Thursday's edition of the Green Guide. Uh, specifically, the letters page has caught my interest uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, there's this letter about uh, a similar comedy program that's on TV. It's headlined, uh, Full Frontal Makes Homework Inviting. Innocently flicking channels, coming across Channel 7's Full Frontal and dutifully watching some Australian comedy was a big mistake. I have never witnessed such a poor array of comedy sketches in my life. And as the show dragged on even more, falling asleep seemed inevitable. Not able to raise one smile, I turned the television off in disgust. The D-Generation's Late Show was the only Australian comedy that had me in stitches every week, and now it is gone. When we must turn to American and English comedies for a good laugh, it makes you realise the poor state that the Australian television comedy scene is in. 
Even watching the commercial for Hey Dad makes five hours of homework look inviting, and that's a scary thought. And that's from Greta McMahon, age 16, Essendon. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, yeah. a, little, a little bit of praise for us and uh, a little bit of a boost sucks for uh, Full Frontal. Although, mind you, if you were to replace Full Frontal with We Interrupt This Broadcast and Commercial for Hey Dad with Commercial for Best of the Russell Gilbert Show, it could still apply today, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, I was in year 12 when Frontline was on and I... I kind of uh, agree, I, you know, nothing replaced the late show. I was still, I was still waiting. I was still hanging out for it. Full frontal. I mean, had its moments, but it just didn't compare to the, the original, the best. But that was really... I think the only thing worth watching full frontal for was when McAuliffe came on and, you know, you'd sit through an hour of full frontal and you'd maybe get five or 10 minutes of McAuliffe. And, and, that, that, was... and that weird news mm. parody in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, that was the best bit. You know that and any any other McAuliffe stuff. But Full Frontal was such a like, the first season of Full Frontal was basically fast forward with a few new cast members, and then it sort of developed into the the Sean McAuliffe and Eric Banner show, and then at one point I think by season five they both left, and you were just left with this not very good show. Um, but then it was wasn't it like Full Frontal? I want to say Full Frontal Unleashed or something, but there was some other version. Oh, no, that was totally Full Frontal, frontal. which then when it moved to Channel 10. So there was Fast Forward. Yeah. Oh, dear, he's got the DVD. Matt's holding up his DVDs. Yeah, then there was Full Frontal. (laughs) I keep mine in the next room to avoid such a display. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was the Eric Banner sketch show. (laughs) And then uh, Totally Full Frontal. Yeah. But... in, in between, you had... Sorry, in between. <laughs> you know, you also got Tonight Live with Steve Weizard. And oh, wow. you also had Bly. And also uh, a compilation, Laugh Out Loud, which was a blend of Fast Forward and first season of Full Frontal. Don't, so, don't make me go into the next room and find my rejection letter from Artist Services where they knock back my <laughs> hilarious sketch ideas. Oh, and, and also Big Girl's Blouse. Oh, big girl class is good. So, yeah. do you have all those ready to discuss during this podcast, or are they just next to you constantly? Uh, little from column <laughs> they, A, little they from framed? column B. Are all of them, all of them framed and on the wall. Uh, yeah, it's like one of those little shopping trolleys that you carry them with you everywhere you go in case it gets mentioned. I have them. Yes, exactly. So, whenever it gets mentioned, it's like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, apparently going for like ninety nine dollars on eBay each, but. You know, it was a, a really weird time where they sort of decided that people with money would buy DVDs of Australian sketch comedy. So they put out everything. And then now, you know, 15 years later, people are just like, what? Why? How did that get a release? Yeah. <laughs> and, and how do I get a copy? You know. Anyway, sorry, Daniel. Totally hijacked that. No, that's all right. All right. I feel like uh, I might have opened up a few wounds there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that's, uh, that's not the only letter that I'm interested in uh, from uh, this recent issue of The Green Guide. There was a response to uh, Ross Warnicke's criticism of Frontline. Two weeks previously, uh, he wrote that the first episode was more sitcom than satire and that for Frontline's work, it must be more immediate, otherwise it might soon do an Alan Jones. Uh, he means uh, that the show uh, may get cancelled like the, his Channel 10 talk show, Alan Jones Live. But personally... I would like to think that it might be more about uh, Mike Moore 
uh, complaining about dust in the studio. Oh, there's fucking dust in this studio. You know, if it was bloody John Laws or someone, the whole joint would be cleaned out. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, Any excuse to play that. If if, if you want to hear more of that sort of stuff, you can do a search for The Closet Recordings of Alan Jones. You'll find a whole bunch of not-for-the-airwaves stuff. Then uh, one week previously... Ross Warnicke softened a little bit, writing that Frontline improved considerably. It still lacked immediacy, but the humour and the plot, checkbook journalism, were more sharply focused. The review after the first episode drew the ire of one letter writer. I won't say who wrote it, but I think you'll get who wrote it very quickly uh, by the time I reach the end. It's headlined, No Strangers to Warnicke's Boots. We are no strangers to criticism from Ross Warnicke. When we began production of The Late Show, he was one of the first to put the boots in. Let's rewind to some highlights from The Age. The only show on TV in which the toilet break is the highlight. Comedy hour that is 55 minutes too long. There is no variety, just skit after skit after skit. Our next TV offering was Frontline, and only three days after its debut, Mr. Warnicke has turned his incisive, critical attention to it. He begins by noting that Frontline comes from some of the team responsible, quote, for the late, great, late show, unquote. Now, just a moment. This guy has spent two years bagging the late show. Since when did it become great? The fact that Ross Warnicke did not enjoy the first episode of Frontline is of no great concern to us. His past ability to pick winners hasn't exactly been a feature. But original Australian comedy is a rare commodity and clearly one worth nurturing. Surely the role of an intelligent critic would be to reserve judgment? We agree with Warnicke that Frontline is not topical. We made a deliberate attempt to avoid this feature. Frontline is about general principles and recurring themes, not topicality. It's like criticising the news for not having a band. The only conclusion we can draw is that Mr Warnicke is either incompetent or he is deliberately chasing controversy to liven up an otherwise dud column. And that's from Santo Chilaro, Tom Gleisner, Jane Kennedy and Rob Stitch, South Melbourne. Nice. Like, I can't think of many times where people have replied directly to Ross Warnicke in the letters uh, column about something that he's written uh, in his weekly Rewind column. What do you think of their response? Because, like, I can understand on, 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 on one hand why they, they did it, like, because they, they got a pretty bad review. But on the other hand... It kind of seems to use internet parlance. They seem a bit butthurt, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like they haven't really let it go since it, since they first got criticised. And even in all the interviews that you read, they're, they're still thinking about that initial bit of criticism and they just oh, haven't I mean, let it go. I think they felt like they wanted to finally I mean, have the, their the, say. The traditional thing to say is that reviews aren't for the people who make something. Reviews are for the rest of the community. You don't get, I mean, there's nothing that they can get from a review that they don't already know. They've spent hours and hours and hours making the show. They're not going to suddenly read Ross Warnicke and go, oh, no, we should have made it topical. Oh, what a mistake. It's like it's it's aimed at, you know, other people. And it's it's always, I mean, look, I am not a fan of Ross Warnicke's work, but it's it's never a good look when you someone who's had their work criticised fronts up the critic and says, look, you got it wrong. Because that's, you make something and you put it out there and then other people have their opinions. Your sort of duty of care 
finishes once you release it. You can't sort of go back and go, no, 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 don't say it's bad, it's good. It's like, well, too late. You've got to make a good show and then it's up to everyone else. So, I mean, I get where they're coming from. And, I mean, it must be annoying to be in Melbourne and have, you know, the paper of records television critic just hammering away at you for years at a time. But on the other hand, they get to make television shows and Ross Warnicky gets to be Ross Warnicky. So I think they've kind of come out in front. Well, uh, speaking of Warnicky being Warnicky, he does get a right of reply just after the letter. Uh, so this is his reply. In the style of the current affairs shows that it parodies, the frontline team does not let the facts get in the way of a good grizzle. And then he outlines four points. Number one, yes, I criticised The Late Show when it began, but soon became a fan, describing it in these pages as ever-improving and very funny. Am I incompetent only when I criticise the DGEN, or also when I praise them? Number two, I selected every edition of the 1993 series as a viewing highlight in my Saturday Extra Guide to Weekend Viewing. There, and in Green Guide's Rewind last year, I referred to The Late Show as TV's funniest sketch comedy series, and at its best, absolutely hilarious. My support for the show was acknowledged in calls from the DGEN's production office. Number three, I always return to reassess programs that I have panned. If they have improved, I say so. While I did not enjoy the first edition of Frontline, I rushed to acknowledge last week that the second episode was a considerable improvement. And number four, a critic's job is not to pick ratings winners. If it were, the job would be easier. Anyway, Frontline's ratings declined by about a quarter in its second week. Absolutely laying on the... Uh, uh, you, can, you can almost read the, the tongue poking out uh, from Warnicky there. Yeah, that, that is old-fashioned. Warnicky! I mean, so, I think, yeah, no. a lot of the time this sort of stuff is really... You've got to read between the lines, in a way. I mean, Melbourne and Australia's media landscape is not so big that they would not be aware of each other privately as well as publicly. And often, yeah, you sort of think, well, there might be more going on, perhaps. Well, see, I'm, I'm wondering about that whole, my support for the show was acknowledging calls from the DJ's production office. I do wonder what that's all about. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that happens. I'm sure they've, you know, Warnicky's done his end-of-year highlights and said The Late Show was great. And various TV publicists and that would ring him up and say, thank you for that. Right. I mean, uh, that's sort of, you know, there's a lot of back scratching. And yeah, as shown on Frontline itself, the, the publicity departments are, you know, working hard in the background to smooth the way for, you know, the, the stories they want to tell. And so, yeah, I'm sure Warnicky said nice things and they said thank you. And that's it. Whereas I'm guessing the actual members of the D generation were probably a bit more inclined to put him directly in the bin. And, uh, yeah, Warnicky is right. Uh, yeah, he, he did um, uh, put the, the second series as a viewing highlight um, after yeah, completely blasting the first series. I don't know quite what happened between the first and the second series that changed his mind, but... Yeah, somehow he did. Not, not, to, not to get out the Ouija board and read the mind of the late Mr. Warnicky, but my assumption would be that he saw that The Late Show was a success and realised that as a TV critic saying a show that was popular was no good, uh, eventually an editor will call him into the office and say, you are out of touch with public opinion on this one. Maybe rethink your views or we will think about getting a critic who does reflect what people are watching. 
So, I mean, he may have changed his mind personally, but I suspect he realised that he couldn't spend two whole years slagging off a show that people liked. Yeah, it does sound a bit, to, to, to quote Frontline, the art of gentle persuasion, quite perhaps. <laughs> so, yeah, that was an, an interesting thing to spot uh, in the Green Guide. So uh, Thanks, I wonder what Warnicky might think of uh, this episode that we're going to look at now. Yes. Now, who wants to do the intro? <clears throat> I will give it a go. Okay. All right. Here we go. Ready? So it's after the theme. Okay. Yeah. After the theme. No news clips or anything with this because this time I got lazy. <laughs> okay. so it's all on me. Hello, I'm Tony Morris, and this is Frontline Season 1, Episode 4, She's Got the Look, broadcast Monday, May 30, 1994. Yay. Don't clap, that. <laughs> no, it's worth clapping. You did it. Well done. <laughs> hey. Yeah, as we'll discover in this episode, it's very, very difficult to do I... these things. I had to do this for community radio 30 years ago, and it was very difficult then. (laughs) Did you you ever have to forward promote rock set? Did you you, you ever have to hit the post, hit the vocals? I was doing community radio breakfast news. I had to put together, like, yeah, in the next half hour, we look at Geelong's parking crisis and that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Geelong's parking crisis. Yes, it is still stuffed. Coming up next, Roxette, she's got the look. They, they wouldn't let me do any of that stuff. That was why I signed up. So the synopsis behind this episode is Brian hires an attractive sports star because A, he likes her, and uh, and B, he likes her. The team, uh, especially <laughs> Emma, uh, their moral values come to, into play. So yeah. it's a fun time in the frontline office and we do open up to the sports star Nikki Burke doing a workout to Roxette she's got the look in the script book it says that uh, she's in the gym sweat strategically dripping down her boobs this is written by grown men I just want to remind you you know what I I read that in the script book and I just remembered that when I was um, at university I did a script writing course and they told you specifically not to write that kind of language when you're doing a description of what's happening in the, you know, in the script. I can't remember what, it's, what that bit's called. So clearly I didn't do very well at script writing. But you're basically not allowed to use like slang words or like boobs or whatever. You know, you have to say breaths. Well, part of the, the thing with script writing is that on the one hand, there are all these rules. And on the other hand, whatever some horrible American person wields out their, you know, script that they got $7 million for. It's like, and it breaks all the rules. Check out how I go into these page-long descriptions of an explosion. And you're just like, yeah, because you were mates with the producer and they let you do that stuff. <laughs> so I'm guessing the frontline script, considering they were writing it for themselves, they could kind of put in... Chuck in a boob. Boobs. Yeah, put in yeah. some Wait, boobs. if that's the rule with script writing, what is it like when you're writing for porn? You, you don't write for porn. <laughs> what are you watching what people are writing? There are, yeah, there are no It's scripts. like Playboy. You read it for the articles. There's no rules in porn. Yeah. No. So, okay. so you're you're there for the plot about, you know, the washing machine's broken down and the mechanics arrived. and That pool cleaning. Oh. Yeah. 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 Now, now you've just got me thinking about some sort of weird sort of um, 
Rule 34 version of Colin Conacher. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to Conacher later. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of Conacher action later. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, <laughs> back to the, the sweating. Hardcore the... Conacher action. You. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I am going to use there that. Is as... a market for, there is a market for that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, I'm low on toner. <laughs> oh, give me more toner. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Move on. Insert the coloured cartridge. Oh, God. Magenta me. Magenta me. <laughs> X-ray action. Oh, no, a paper Oh, jam. no, Sorry I've got that. a cyan. Anyhow, back, back, to, back to frontline. We, you know, we we basically see that um, yeah, they're 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 looking to um, Brian's looking to hire Nikki based on her looks alone. But she sounds uh, too. The, the the yeah the, the caveat as you're about to say. Yeah, sounds a bit too Joe Bailey. <laughs> oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. but I'm sure but Mick will be knocking that. on the door there. Well, they, they never fixed Joe Bailey, so how can they fix this woman? Yeah, well, you know what the funny thing is? It's the bit afterwards where Mike uh, mentions going on the sale of the century uh, for the celeb special. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh. celebrity super challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, yeah. sale of the century having a celebrity super challenge on the 5th. I was just like... No, nah, not for you, Mike. Really? No, you got too much credit for a thing like that. Yeah, sure. Oh, that's a bit of a... Uh, uh, Rooting towards himself, isn't it? Hmm. Our first contestant began her career in radio, got involved with a bad crowd, and ended up a fully fledged member of the D Generation. Please welcome Countdown's biggest fan, Jane Kennedy. Howdy, Jane. When? <laughs> when Jane was on the comedy special. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's it's cross neck work promotion. Yeah. Well, it's if Mike did go on it, he would be having the quote. Papa dumb. <laughs> Uh, we also get the first sort of reservations about Nikki being hired from Mike, but uh, Brian seems to um, soothe Mike's uh, Ego. soothe Mike's uh, apprehension, uh, saying that she'll be learning from pros like Mike. I mean, this, this is one of the things I sort of feel watching it that it doesn't sort of date Frontline because they kind of explicitly put Mike up as kind of being this old fashioned journo that's come up from the ABC and being poached, but it's. It just, the whole thing through this episode, I just kept thinking, there's nobody on commercial television who would blink an eye once at the idea of hiring some good-looking person to be on. That's that's what you're hired for. There's no sort of, I can't believe we're getting good-looking people on television. Television, good-looking people. It's like, that's all it's there for. You don't sort of, yeah, the idea that, oh, no, journalistic integrity. It's like, well, you know, we... There are newspapers if you don't want to show your face. So, uh, yeah, after that, uh, we have uh, the girls talking about Melrose Place. No hotter place. Yeah. I used to watch Melrose Place back in the day. And because we were so far behind, it was always gossip when you knew what was going on. So the fact that uh, Dominica knew what was going on probably a year was, ago was in that, America. Was that accurate, though, Kim? <laughs> Michael and Sydney. No, well, I, I can't there's, remember. There's actually there's there's two different sort of rumors about what happens in Melrose because uh, in the show it's that Michael and Sydney get married, but in the script it's that uh, uh, it's about what happens at Billy and Allison's wedding, and Kate asks, "Does she die?" So. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm guessing what actually happened might be lost to the mist of time. I would just guess it was probably when they got around to filming it, they had more 
accurate gossip to go with. Yeah, and they, they're probably both correct. We can Google it now. I just can't be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> me, me, me either. Save, save that for the, for the Milrose Place podcast. With Nikki turning up at the office, Mike is a whole bunch of smitten. He is in deep smit. <laughs> Everything's fine. He, he, it's like, yeah, Nikki's okay, uh, but no journalistic integrity. Yeah, I know. She, she turns up in the sports gear and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just a bit sweaty. Who turns up to their, like, job interview kind of situation dressed like that? But anyway. People kind of do now. Like, the idea of wearing active wear as, as just clothes generally is kind of a thing yeah. now, but it definitely wasn't in 1994. So she's very decades ahead of her time. The sort of move that you would expect from a character that would later on be revealed to be manipulative. Yes. Ah, yes. I, I did kind of think, oh, are we, is the twist going to be that she's acting dumb, but she's really sort of a player, which I guess they kind of touch on. But yeah, no, I was just like, who comes to work dressed like that? But uh, Jeff uh, is choosing what glasses to wear and he does reveal his news. Hey, Mike, I don't want to rock the boat. What do you mean? You don't know? What? You know my urban wildlife documentary? No. They found a time slot. What? Farmer said 6.30 on a Sunday night. Oh, Farmer. the general manager. The general it's on manager. then. It's, it's on. on. As good as. Oh, because I saw that Tina Dalton thing on Deadly Australians. Oh, that... How easy is that? Mike, it's been done. That's, but people want to know done. what's going on in their own backyards, not exactly. in northern Queensland. Exactly. So I'm not rocking the boat. Oh, no. Well, well don't. The boat, no. It'll Wait. look good. It'll look good. Now, that's just setting, you know, something up further down. Subtle, I guess. It's a subtle little joke down the track well also a nice sort of subtlety here and really you could probably put this over the whole episode is the theme of not rocking the boat really mm. um in terms of some of the uh, the other uh, like like the main nikki burke uh, plot line yeah but uh we might get to that when, uh, a bit later on now, now when you say it's setting something up further down the line is it 20 years later when uh, have you been paying attention starts <laughs> on a six thirty sunday time slot we <laughs> no. really forget don't we? that's a that's that, that's a long reach but i'll 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 pay that <laughs> there's some serious psychic ability going on if so because well, i did think that because i was like oh wow that that was a dud time slot even then but hello i'm mike moore welcome to future line <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then we get to uh, Brian versus Jan um, and the revelation that the network wants Mike to do Sale of the Century, but Brian doesn't uh, because he doesn't want the audience knowing that uh, Mike isn't the intelligent, knowledgeable host he's sold at. Well, that was that was an interesting bit that I was sort of, I don't know whether it was meant to double with, with Nikki's character or not, that they're both just good-looking airheads. Yeah, it possibly is. There's more of a focus on the, the whole female aspect in this episode, but then... Yeah, it does. It does bring it back to to uh, Mike's cognitive abilities and uh, knowledge of of um, capital <laughs> cities. <laughs> and you know what it is? It is Conica Watch. Yay! Yeah, Colin Conica in the background answering Dom's phone as the team prep for the show. Did you notice that when they're oh, all gathering together? Yeah. I didn't notice that, to be honest. I, I, did, I did notice in there, he's at six minutes and five uh, seconds into the episode, if you're looking for it. Yep. So the phone's ringing in the background, and he picks it up after the second ring, and then hands off the phone to Dom. 
Great acting. He's, Great in it, acting. he's in it quite a lot, actually, throughout this whole team meeting scene. Can I just point out another thing that I really enjoyed about the team meeting? And that is that Mike sort of joins the team meeting, but he brings his own chair. And it's it's one of those backless chairs. Yes. Do you remember those? Yes. And and if if you one wanted of, to be a complete... chairs. Yeah, one of those sort of ergonomic chairs. And, and if you were a complete tosser in the 90s, you had one of these chairs because, you know, oh, it's for my back, yeah? And, and obviously Mike Moore's got one. So, so that's nice. But also in this scene, there is a cut line and it's in the script. So the, the team are brainstorming stories for Nikki, right? So they're saying, well, she's an athlete. We need to find a story that's going to suit her. And then Emma comes in sarcastically with something without many verbs. And then, <laughs> then there's the, this is the cut line. Marty says, nah, we keep them for Mike. <laughs> and and it, it's a nice joke. And I thought, well, why would they cut that nice joke? And then I realised, you know, they want to keep the scene moving. So they, that's why they've removed the joke. But, yeah, anyway, there's a cut line for you. So, uh, yeah, in this production meeting, we uh, find out that Marty's got a shonky lawyer story on the boil. And they decide to wrap things up and do a foot in the door, get footage of the shonky lawyer refusing to talk. They also drum up a sports story for Nikki, something to do with handicapped sports people, but no wheelchairs. Yeah, no wheelchair. Yeah. It turns out to be a deaf marathon swimmer, which is just an excuse to get Nikki and some togs, according to Brian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Emma does call out Brian for giving Nikki an on-camera role. What if I told you that I wanted an on-air position? Yeah. Why? Why couldn't I be your reporter? Oh, I'm good. You say that I'm good. Hey, you're very, very good. You're the best as a producer. Yeah, but I thought that this is... Some... Hey, you understand how it works. Well, I thought I did, but all of a sudden this girl with no experience is suddenly on camera. She's a high profile, very intelligent. Oh, don't She's... patronise me. I am not blind, yet she is very attractive. But, you know, if I put on a suit, a bit of makeup, and write this shit. I'm more a journalist than she is. I'm more a bloody journalist than Brooke and Marty. And they get paid five times the salary I get paid and I'm stuck here. I write all their questions. I do all their interviews. I set it all up for them. And what do I get? Nothing. And when I just want an opportunity, nothing. It's against treated as a joke and become reporting. Got to be kidding. You finished? I think so. That echoes still today. So that's true. I've, witnessed, I've witnessed stuff like that numerous times in the past. And yeah, it's... Mm. Pretty damn accurate. The the thing that struck me with it, I mean, I don't know, just from my experience in the shallow end of the media pool, is that really, really early on, like right from sort of day one when you get employed at, especially, well, I only know sort of print um, and a little bit, people I know work at television, but there's a real divide between on-air talent and backroom people. It's like basically after the very early stages you're in one you're on one path or another if you're editorial and you want to be sort of more out the front that's you have to go somewhere else you basically have to leave where you work and try and get a job doing that somewhere else they just don't sort of the paths don't cross very often inside an organization if you're a producer i know the abc is different because the abc is a huge organization and they can shuffle people around but but for like TV shows and, and magazines and stuff, if you're an editor or you're a producer, you're not going to be put on front of the camera unless something's gone horribly wrong with the on-air talent because the on-air talent are a different, it's a different job. It's like literally a different thing. If you're putting together questions and doing the research and coming up with the stories, that's what people think journalism is. But the people who are presenting have a different set of skills, which are, 
you know, looks, um, ability to read from, you know, cue cards, able to walk and talk at the same time, which all sounds dismissive, but is actually a skill that is kind of difficult to do. And so there's sort of, while Emma's outburst makes lots of sense for the episode, I think in the real world, what she would do would be like, all right, I'm a producer on Frontline, time to try and get a hosting job on radio or somewhere else, and then come back to Frontline going, I've got experience now as well as being a producer, which is a boring, pedantic point that makes, you know, adds nothing to the episode and is just me sitting there going, is that how it would really work? I'm not sure. It doesn't really happen as much now because of the technology and so, so much uh, media accessibility now. But whole thing with with my experience anyway, uh, radio would be if you, you know, the, I, I, I was lucky to avoid this, um, but uh, I, I saw people um, like say, uh, uni students or whatever end up being street teamers or casuals uh, working in the newsroom and so forth and they want to take the next step up and then they go oh you got to go regional so you got to go out to the countryside work in a uh, smaller regional radio station or um, they are trying to do some stuff uh, in one area but if they want to be on tv they go out to a regional tv station like sctv or you know whatever that is called and then cut their teeth in there to do the local sports thing or local, you know, cat in the tree type thing. And, uh, and then they eventually come back and have that experience. And then usually it's, uh, if they come back, Oh yeah, we can give you this role. And then they realize that it's, they don't last too long and then they move on. For, they go, Oh, you know what? This was not worth it. Or they're lucky and they go further up because, um, they have a connection with a, uh, one of the main shows. So, um, and the chemistry works well, and they get cool. Um, the big general manager from the metro station heard you, or whatever, and bam, yeah, it, 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 it can vary. But sometimes it's luck of the draw, sometimes it's A, it's not worth it, and B, um, I can do better. One of the guys I went to journalism school with, um, he got poached uh, basically, I think, like. Not it might have been Mildura Television, one of the regional stations in Australia, um, came to the school and they were looking for someone and this guy was put up for it. And he went out there and did television reporting and was like on camera. Um, and eventually he, he was the host of Family Feud for a while. <laughs> and, then, right. and then kind of went off in, into production and runs a very successful production company and all that sort of thing. But that was like a very different career path to everybody else. If he hadn't got that kind of come on to television thing, he wouldn't have gone down there. And there was no way for the rest of us to do that without sort of having that initial kind of leap. But I mean, I was just thinking watching this, a friend of mine, um, and I'll I'll, I'll keep the details vague because otherwise it'd be a bit too specific, but recently got a job on a current affairs style show and and this friend of mine has done on-camera work. He's been on, he's fronted television shows, a couple of television shows. But he was hired as a producer on this particular show. And, yeah, there was sort of never anything that he would be going on-camera on the show. They had, like, there was the on-camera talent, and then there was the guys that he worked with that were putting together the stories. But apart from, you know, maybe making a cameo, here or there, you just didn't sort of go from one job to the other. They were very sort of, you were the backroom guys and your job finished at, you know, 
6.30 when the show went to air, whereas the on-air talent, that was kind of when their job started. That was when they would be presenting things. And it, it seemed to be a fairly firm divide. They weren't sort of, nobody was there going, why can't I get on camera? Because it's like, well, because you don't look like this former sportsman who is on camera or you don't look like, you know, this network personality who's been around for 15 years and is now on camera on this show. You look like a regular person. So we'll keep you in the back room. Thanks. There's also another aspect to this that we get in the next scene um, when both when Emma is in the ladies' toilets with Brooke and Brooke kind of gives her, gives her some advice, you know, this is the way it is for women, you know. If you yeah. want to be on television as a woman, you just have to be good looking. That's kind of it. You have to be good looking. You have to be able to speak well. That's it. And so you kind of you kind of get that alternative point of view, you know, beyond you know what you're saying about the the difference between the production people and the on air people. There's also the women aspect to this, which is important when you think about Nikki and and also Emma. So I was yeah. surprised yeah. that Brooke wasn't the one that was shirty about Nikki because it kind of felt like she was more of a threat to Brooke but I guess Brooke's character is a different kind of character. I think I think Brooke is is someone who who very much understands the game and she knows what she wants and she knows that she's going to have to deal with obstacles like this and a bit later in the episode she does actually deal with it or so she thinks. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, again it, it comes to, to this overarching thing of begrudgingly accepting the status quo about not rocking the boat. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and we know that she's given some good advice to Emma in this particular bit and we assume that when she, later on, that she's giving some good advice to, to Nikki, but uh, it ends up backfiring. On her. Well, I will say that uh, the first advice that Brooke did give to Emma was pretty damn good. Talking about from experience, it's very strong, very, very truthful. Yeah, the whole thing about Yana, she's only got 10, 10 years, that whole tick, tick, tick stuff. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I, I don't know whether it's because since uh, we recorded our last episode, we had International Women's Day because we, we did have a couple of media-based stories which kind of came out of that. We had Jessica Rowe claiming that a boss at Channel 10 wouldn't let her open the news bulletins because her co-anchor is a man and she's a woman. And then oh. we had Lisa Miller on ABC News Breakfast getting all of these obnoxious comments because of a skirt she wore and then having articles written about that, which just amplified the abuse. Mm. Awful clickbait. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it just, yeah, I think sort of especially yeah, tying into the gender divide, um, yeah, it sort of seems like everybody is, yeah, they, they accept the status quo. They don't like it. They have rants about it, as we saw Emma have and Brian accept Emma to have, but they don't really do anything to change. I think that's sort of the difference as well between doing a, a sitcom and perhaps doing a movie because I, I think if you were doing a, a one-off about this, you would have management be a lot more sleazy. But because these are sort of recurring characters that have to come back in the next few weeks and you don't want people to be throwing their you know, bovril at the television whenever they see them, You've kind of got to go, oh, look, management, uh, you know, they're blokey, but they're not sort of openly leering at her. They're, they kind of dial it down a little bit just for the sake of, you know, being able to keep doing the show. Because realistically, this kind of, as you just said, this sort of stuff is not something that you could really come back from if you were doing it truthfully. If you were saying, you know, 
the management wanted this hot chick on the show and, you know, uh, can we get her in a sexy outfit? You don't want to watch that the next week and have those guys doing something else. Moving on, the next part where we now see Marty trying to execute his story and he just gets a straight-up refusal from the Mr. Controversial Mr. Bowen on tape because uh, his victim is actually quite happy to talk. Uh, Mr. Bowman, it's Martin Nastasio here from Frontline. Now, why won't you speak to us about the $250,000 that's gone missing from your client's trust funds? All right, come in. <laughs> That's a beautiful line. And his face. The look on Marty's yeah, face. Yeah. It's like this He's like, shocked, what? horrified look. <laughs> There's also this sort of weird uh, fixate. Uh, Stu, uh, the cameraman, seems to have an obsession with McDonald's apple pies. <laughs> yeah. I think this runs a couple of times in the series from memory. Interesting. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. You need to set up a screen he- for apple pie watch. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Colin pie watch. Apple pie. But, uh, but yeah, Marty, Marty seems, seems to, to crypt that. He's the only guy, uh, he's the only person in Australia who uh, who eats those things. <laughs> the choco pie. <laughs> he, he's obviously... Is it actually choco? No, that's just an urban... No, I don't think they can get away with that anymore. No, anyway. not at all, no. He, he's obviously got, you know, strong guts because the problem with apple pies, as everyone knows, is not that they're horrible because they're actually quite nice, but they're just too hot. And when you bite into them, they're just molten. And, you know, you always, no. always, always burn your mouth. I've seen the memes of the uh, the molten lava and they're yeah. just putting in, the, here they are, this is how they, this is where they're, they make them. Yeah, you need, you need to buy it and you need to sit it in a cool place about half an hour before you attempt it. No, I want one. You want to do a Macca's run for me? <laughs> I don't yeah, want to go to Let's all go on Deliveroo and get an apple pie right now. Although probably at this, this time of the morning here in London, I don't think I'll be in any luck i might get some pancakes now now also there is a scene just after uh the crew recoils from mr bowman being very accommodating he gets back in the car and uh, yeah it's not in the show but it's uh, basically marty uh well uh, Stu protesting you know that he's uh, mr bowman said he'd speak to them and marty's saying you know christ uh, he practically invited us in for a beer he was about to talk brian would kill us and then tries to change the subject by saying, turn that up, Willie. I love this song while they're in the car. I understand why it wasn't filmed because it wasn't really necessary to the plot. But it's this, it's this sort of weird thing. Like it's, it's Marty trying to, to deny, deny the reality. Well, I think the, the idea I'm guessing just is that they already have the story worked out. If the lawyer has a good you know, excuse for what he's done, that just makes things more complicated. And they don't want, you know... A story where it's like a lawyer who dudded people has a good reason. Maybe it's not so black and white. It's like, well, that's not our story. We need a story where the sleazy lawyer is made off with their cash. Back in the office, there's awkward conversations that Mike is having with Nikki, getting a bit of the brush off. Poor Nikki. And uh, and more revealing that um, Marty's story keeps backfiring uh, because <laughs> while they're trying to escape and Mr. Bowen's going, no, no, come in, seriously, I can tell you everything. And then they're acting all resistant, but it all looks good on tape, doesn't it? <laughs> Especially uh, when they go into the production studio later on and take everything out of context. Yeah, they basically reverse the footage so it looks like he slammed the door in their faces as opposed to open it welcomingly. So, yeah. And that was a good introduction for 
journalism students and, and people watching the show about how things can be manipulated like that. Well, that, that's kind of the, the lasting legacy of Frontline is sort of not so much the, the jokes and that it's as it was that they lifted the lid on the various tricks of these shows and how they mm. manipulated things to come up with, you know, stories. It's just like editing podcasts where things can get manipulated after. <laughs> yes, where you can make me sound 20% funnier. <laughs> it's not, it's not a miracle worker. <laughs> <laughs> it's just got that little slider on the mixing desk where he pushes it up you know funny just introduce a bit of wacky music kind of every time you say something but that's the thing as well i mean i don't know i, I assume people today are much more media literate and sort of once you put together your own series of tiktok videos you kind of know how the tricks work but but back then there was sort of this idea of trust in what you were seeing and you know mm. mike moore is kind of a, a symbol of that as this sort of gormless journalist who was constantly going oh but that's not you know journalistic ethics whereas these days ethics eh, no. oh well I don't. I don't know that people. I don't know that people are much wiser about the media because all all these people yeah. who just kind of credulously accept any old crap that's put on Facebook, you know, they'll yeah, go all the mainstream BTT. media, boo boo, and then they'll just eat up any bollocks they read on on social media, you know. That was exactly. written by AI. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I th yeah. I think we've probably got less an ability to spot the fake these days. But anyway, mm. speaking of fakes. Uh, Jan and Brian are having an argument about having Nikki on the show, the fake reporter. And, uh, well, here's a bit here. I think in Nikki's case, being so attractive, we really will need to push the credibility angle, Brian. Jan, this girl is a high-profile sports star. This is not Rachel Friend from Neighbours <laughs> popping up on a current affair. And I do have a clip of the Rachel Friend popping up on a current affair. To help compile a guide to the best bargains, and Rachel Friend's report also includes some advice on how to avoid costly mistakes. Just bear with me another minute, please. The great Aussie dream is still alive in the minds of most, but these days buying into the dream is fraught with danger. Whether you can afford to get a slice of the housing market depends very much on where you live. Across the country, prices vary dramatically. The median price for a standard three-bedroom home ranges from $110,000 in Hobart through to $260,000 in Sydney. Oh, those were the days, weren't they? Oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jeez. Those I were just the wanted days. to get to that point. So is that uh, why they mention her, or is it, did you just find Rachel, Rachel Friend? Oh, yeah, that is, it is, it's a story that Rachel Friend did a article, a story on it in a current affair back in nineteen ninety. Like just from that audio yeah, clip, something. she actually sounds kind of credible. Like you know, she sounds she yeah. sounds like a reporter, and that's probably because she's an actress, and so she can pretend to be a reporter perfectly credibly. Whereas <laughs> you know, Nikki Burke is just an like athlete. these people are doing. Yeah, yeah, but, but well, not, she's not the only one from Neighbours who has gone into gone from acting to journalism, and another one was Rebecca Ritters, who was Hannah Martin in Neighbours. So she's now a TV journalist and host and stuff in some somewhere overseas in Germany or something like that. Mm. Well, the, anyway, look that up. Yeah, that, that, was, that's honestly yeah. the truth. Back then, there was still sort of the idea that the people on television were journalists in the old-fashioned, you know, 
I can find a story and I'll get the interview sort of sense. Whereas, you know, as Frontline points out repeatedly, that's just not how it works. You have a bunch mm. of backroom people who do all the work and your job is to go out there and, you know, perhaps conduct the interviews and speak for the voiceovers. That's kind of, it's two separate jobs. There's no reason why Rachel Friend can't do the second job. It's just that people expected her to be able to do the first one as well. So, yeah, we, we have uh, Jan and Brian trying to sell Nikki Burke to the to the general public, as it were. And this does seem very similar to a scene in the Desert Angel episode where they're talking about, mm. you know, like if you went to an op shop, that meant that meant you were community-minded. So, like, they're, they're, they're looking at, you know, like, well, journalistic experience, well, she wrote for a school newspaper, or, you know, uh, mm. she went to the Commonwealth Games. Okay, mm. well, that means that she's travelled to all the hotspots. And, uh, you know, oh, uh, don't mention the boyfriend. We want her to be... Uh, we want every man in Australia to think he's in with a chance, and Brian included, I assume. It's this weird sort of over-egging of the pudding, so to speak. Isn't it just how everyone puts their resumes together now, though? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's LinkedIn. It's just yeah, you it's... write any old stuff, put it on there. There was one other thing uh, that Brian said to Jan, which was, remember when you were at Channel 9 and you said Ian McFadden was the ideal host for Cluedo because he once studied criminology? <laughs> which cracks Jan right up. <laughs> did did now, you actually go on Wikipedia and look up whether Ian McFadgen did study criminology? Because I have, I have to confess, I haven't. No, just because I've been to his house. Just because you've been to his house doesn't mean I know. This. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to do this right now. Well? <laughs> I'm going to look this up right now. I just well, assumed yeah. it meant he'd committed some crimes. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> crimes sure. against comedy. Against no, comedy. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, like, basically, basically, this like it doesn't seem like it's um, I, like I can't say whether it's true or not, but it certainly seems plausible. There is nothing on Wikipedia that says this. Ah, he he was uh, he did play a part as a detective in Prisoner. <laughs> so... <laughs> Maybe that's <laughs> well, it. There you go. <laughs> All right, so we see the edited result of Marty's story being out of context, and then Jane gets a gift uh, after an interview with uh, Mr. James Packer while Mike runs to work <laughs> in a certain uniform or certain clothing. Yeah, he, he rides to work on a, on a bike with some Lycra gear. He also turns up at some point wearing tennis gear, although that's a bit later, isn't it? Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. He, but he does, yeah, then he runs to work and he's got like sort of like bike shorts on, but also like another pair of shorts over the top. And then he's got a singlet and he looks pretty ridiculous. A sweaty singlet. So he, he looks pretty but he's stupid. Basically, yeah. basically looking like he's never run before, yeah. before his uh, previous run. Yeah. Station manager uh, Ian and Brian are playing around the golf and they talk about clip shows, especially one around Ray Martin's. Uh, Good sorts, top blokes, and... Dickheads and handbags! <laughs> that great bit from The Late Show. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favourite sketches, yeah. And you know what? I'm going to insert that bit there and take the other bit out and no one's going to have any idea what the hell we're talking about. Now, if you really want to hear what was actually said there, go to the end of the episode. It may <laughs> or may not be a blooper. They won't come back. <laughs> and then you can just do I'm a spin-off called Tony's Sarcastic Comment, which would be about 80% of what I say. Yeah. 
there was one line at the golf course which I thought was um, very typical of uh, management, perhaps male management, and that was Farmer asking Brian, has she got legs? And Brian replying, mm. up to her armpits. Mm. This is... Although, I mean, although mind you, no, I mean, was, will she last? <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say it's slightly lower, but actually, anatomically speaking, it's slightly higher. In the script, it's up to her neck. <laughs> The next slightly oh. higher than the armpits, isn't it? That would be kind of awkward That's to walk lead. around if if you don't have a torso. I mean, how did she how did she make it to the Olympics? For goodness' sake! Well, she's a runner, so I guess it's all you need. You don't need a head or body. Just but yeah, you could you could imagine that it's quite something that two upper management uh, mm. men, white men, would say. She would have been good at yes. hurdles, so instead of just, oh, yeah. oh, the high just jump, stepping I over. <laughs> Doing the scissor jump rather than the, <laughs> the flop, <laughs> Fosbury flop. No. Uh, this is a good segue, uh, Matt. I was just saying uh, I found my old diary from when I did my uh, internship at a newspaper back in the 90s, and um, obviously I was one of the only females there in the newsroom, so I'll just read a little bit about it because um, – I was very upset. This is when I was very upset that I had my article kind of hacked to bits by a senior editor, which is, you know, it happens. That's what, what happens. And I learnt the hard way. And I was just very uh, upset about it. And I was like, I continue. I, w- I shall read. Tomorrow is another day, as the saying goes, and I'm hoping it'll be a better one. But the values this particular newspaper has are old-fashioned and patriarchal and discriminatory, not only for young people, but for us females. I mean, who turns up at the news conference, all fat and or balding and or over 50 and pretentiously dick-headed males? Not a single female in the house to be seen. Why is this? And one of the acting chief editors I mean, what the hell? Did he say what I just think he said? Someone mentioned a young journalist who had a story, and he said, Oh, that's so-and-so. I don't remember her name. They're all the same young, naive female journalists, aren't they? And I was just standing next to him at the time. So he turned to me and said, Oh, what a sexist thing for me to have said. Bastards, all of them. Pig-headed males. I'm quoting my friend Anne here. They have absolutely no concern for us newbies. Well, we all have to start at the bottom, but there's no need to gloat your ass off once you're up at the top there, is there? <laughs> is this what us future journalists have to be exposed to when the future rolls past us? Being introduced beyond the facade of journalistic ethics has been an eye-opener this year. If it weren't for the expense of being... If it weren't for the experience of being able to go out into the real world, then I would only be hearing about these horror stories in textbooks and on Frontline. <laughs> so, wow. There's my reference there. <laughs> I actually went on a bit of a rant for several pages there, which I won't go into, but uh, I was, the next day I was like, ah, they did edit my article to sound quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon a lot of, a lot of um, you know, women who've worked in journalism could definitely relate to that. I have to say that even I, who have never had a career in journalism, can relate to aspects of that, just dealing with sort of older blokes in the office, being sort of patronising and dismissive of, of anyone female. Um, so yeah, that's very, very relatable indeed. Oh, look, they're also just patronizing and dismissive of anyone male. Um, if they were younger, I don't know. Journalism is an unpleasant road to travel. And I think for a lot of people, by the time they get to that sort of level, the only benefit left is being unpleasant to underlings. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've got no comment for that one. 
<laughs> yeah, me, like me, me either. And I mean, that's just more because I'm not female, really. I mean, again, it's sort of uh, it seems to be yeah showing that whole overarching thing of it shouldn't be this way, but it's the status quo. Mm. Yeah. Which I mean, it and does front sound line lot, taught me that. Yeah. So Frontline taught us all a, all a lesson and helped us be prepared for what was to come as we went out into the world, <laughs> regardless of the career. Because it like it certainly does sound a lot like the next scene, which is uh, Mike and Emma talking about uh, Nikki and like Mike Mike trying to to calm Emma down, saying that they both know Nikki was hired for her looks, but they have to accept that. And yet Mike is going for the looks. <laughs> mm. Well, yeah. as, as Emma says, it's so obvious you can't on her. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 but I support you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's odd. Yeah, very odd. It's one or the other, Mike. But after Brooke's uh, poo sculpture, well, it was a poo sculpture, wasn't it? Yeah, there's a, yeah. There's a bloke out in the country who makes sculptures out of poo and and they send Brooke down there to interview him and she doesn't actually manage to find this guy. So she has he to. Shot through. Yeah, he shot through. So um, yeah, she has to find some other local characters because they've driven three hours, and she's got to find some kind of story. <laughs> so we we get treated to a series of extremely piss weak yokel characters doing their rubbish <laughs> kind of skills. There's a whip cracker who can't crack a whip. He's he's quite funny. Yeah, just, the they just have to keep filming him until he gets it. <laughs> Yeah, it's the vibe of the thing, you know. It's, he did it's that in exact the first line, go. isn't it? It's like the humi- when when they it's the humidity. It's like oh, it's the vibe of the thing. It's like you know, yeah. It, it would be a bunch of characters and larrikins and good sorts and all that was very uh, something that a certain someone would absolutely love. All Aussie adventures, time to hit the road. It's so, definitely a strain in working dog's humour, isn't it? Of just taking the piss out of outback characters, zany outback figures who are a bit of, uh, shit. Who would... <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of what man would spend two million dollars creating this vibe. Yeah, oh. the, like Glenn oh, Rowan. There was a, another, another late show sketch of very early on in series one. I'd, I'd like to say, uh, I'm, I'm only going on by, by memory here, but yeah, basically, yeah, all of these typical. Outback Larrikin characters who have the sky as their blanket, and come you know pre-equipped with what was it you know half a dozen anecdotes, deeply boring anecdotes as well. The the thing that kind of struck me with this bit is I I kept trying to think how does how does this relate to the the main story that they've kind of sent Brooke out on this rubbish job, and yet it's sort of like oh, I want to you know Emma's saying I want to be on camera you know why won't you give me a shot and it's like this doesn't seem like a job you would be you know, knocking down a door to get, driving three hours to talk about a pile of poo. Well, there's the, there's the bit of a fall from grace from interviewing James. Well, Parker. exactly, and she points yes. this out. It, it's, again, this is like, this is how it really is. One day you're doing James Packer, the next day you got to interview a local shit sculptor. So that's, that's the job. That's how it is. After Brian tries to train Nikki doing pieces to camera with disastrous results... Brooke does wrap up her stories. And finally, this is the Major Mitchell Cockatoo. Ah! <laughs> How was that? Uh, that was fantastic, great, terrific, thanks. Did you get that? No. Good. 
Well, it's been a marvellous afternoon. Let's just recap, shall we? The uh, whipcracker, spellbinding. The bush balladeer, could have listened to him for hours. Uh, not forgetting the incredibly talented woman who could play the recorder through her nose. Very attractive. I'll go to walk the award for this. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, you, you, you cut out the best line uh, from the student that comes straight after. Don't forget the bloke who reckons Blue Healers was based on him. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which, like, considering that's the sleepy township of Mount Thomas, makes me wonder uh, what exactly he's done. That's where Channel 9 chimes in again, stealing the story of the of the, the shit sculptor. Oh, dare I say it, they might be shit-stirring. Uh, the sculptors look pretty good. I was trying to work out, because, like, Channel 9, when they drive past, they've actually got a shit sculptor in the back of their car. I'm trying to work out who it's a sculpture of, and I thought, is this, is this like, meant to be Ray Martin or something? I couldn't work it out. <laughs> anyway, well, see, write, in, write in, in if in you the, know. It, it's it's in the script, but it's not on the screen that they, they sort of say that, like, it's like sheep sculptures made out of sheep poo and cow, cow sculptures made out of cow poo. Mm. Which, but this is a human. I mean, this is a human they, head, though. Uh, you don't mean that it was made out of. Ah, uh, well, it, uh, it could be, I suppose. But <laughs> that's. I mean, you know, it is the country. If you're going to give a president Channel Nine, get him a load of feces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. do wonder what they would have done with that aggressive when gift. they got back to um, when they got back to Richmond. Mm. <laughs> put it, put it on the garden, possibly. I don't know. Give it, give, give it to Don Burke. Yeah, oh, no. he deserves it. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Brooke does go back to the office and, and gives Nikki some advice back in the office bathroom. So after, you know, she palms off the advice to Emma, Nikki cops it as well. Great advice again. Go out, cut your teeth, you know, do what you need to do and so forth or go stick to what, with what you're good at and that is sport. sport. Yeah, sports person, yeah. So, but, um, then, but then Brooke says that her Olympics is sixty minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, because it means travel, getting your own producer. They write all your questions. They set it all up for you. So Brooke tells her what her dream is and her vision, and uh, which sets something up for later. But Jeff is upset that his documentary gets dropped. Oh, what a shame! And uh, Brooke tells Emma that uh, Nikki is moving on, and she won't be a problem anymore. Gee, I wonder. Can, can uh, I just point something out here about um, the scene with Mike and Jeff? Now, um, I noticed that Mike is actually wearing a Hanes windsheeter. And, of course, anyone who remembers the brands will remember this. We got our Hanes all over the country. We got our Hanes all over the world. We got our Hanes all over the sport. And, boy, we got our Hanes all over the sky. Uh, James Blundell singing the Haynes commercial jingle and something yeah. was he on a motorbike yeah. in that yeah. was, is he's he riding, riding a motorbike and then yeah. everyone's like he's not wearing a helmet yeah, yeah that was quite <laughs> controversial at the time Health wasn't it he wasn't, wasn't wearing a helmet yeah. but yeah unfortunately when I saw that Haynes windshield I was just triggered and remembered that ad so I thought <laughs> we got a sorry everyone this is now your new earworm enjoy we got a hands all over the country you just wanted to we got a hands cut, cut it out commercial <laughs> never play that again 
Well, it's better that you got James Blundell doing Haynes and in that same era, I think it might have been the year before or around that same time period, you also had Lee Kernigan doing the oh, McDonald's, McDonald's yeah. ad, the McBeefsteak. Yeah. <laughs> so I won't play that. Please don't. I guess, no, I won't. But hey, it's better than four and a half minutes of shit. We've got some cut lines here. If you've ever wanted to know what the full lyrics of the Leadership Lullaby are, because we only get the last line, actually, it goes like this. Oh, dear, who will become our chief? Hewson, Bronny or Peter Reef? The Liberals will find they get no relief till Johnny decides who's boss. That's the lyrics. Now, smell that satire there. Mm, delicious you know, satire. John Clark and Brian Dorif quaking in their boots at that one. <laughs> There's, a, there's also a, a little, a tiny change to the, the title. In the script, it's The Leadership Limbo, but on screen it's The, the Leadership Lullaby. And then, sort of, and then sort of wrapping everything up, we see another grab of the lovable country larrikins um, and another um, look at Gary Sweet. A lot more Gary Sweet than uh, Brooke Vandenberg in the clip there. So. Most people I know ah. that I'm no, no one just forgotten about that. Go, and now go back to James Blundell, I think. No, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably probably prefer that one. <laughs> however, however, we've kind of missed the key point here, and that is that we suddenly get the announcement that Nikki doesn't want to do the show. Yes, Brian says in the script, again, it's in the script, but it's not on screen, uh, that she, she doesn't want to do Frontline, quote, some crap about the Olympics, unquote. And then we discover that, or Brooke discovers, that her dream job working for 60 minutes is completely destroyed by Nikki taking her spot. Mm. Yeah, mm. They discover that with a 60 minutes promo. Yeah, it's, an, it's a, a great little sort of subversion there because Brooke thinks that she's done the right thing in uh, persuading Nikki not to do Frontline by talking about 60 Minutes. Um, but, uh, yeah, basically, uh, Brooke's going, yeah, not like that. Yeah. Not, not like, don't, don't replace your dream with my dream. I have to say that Nikki, Nikki's played this really well, hasn't she? You know, because it, it's hard to tell whether yeah. she, was, she was naive or whether she was just playing it naive throughout this whole episode. You know, because there's absolutely yeah. zero hint that she's going to take this 60 minutes job. And then suddenly she's just completely screwed Brooke over. Well, yeah, because they, they sort of, when they're talking on the golf course and they say, you know, she's being managed by her coach, <laughs> there's sort of no, it's not like she's got some, you know, Sven Gali in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, that's all you need to do with Frontline. You just go, oh, she's teamed up with Harry and Miller. Ugh, and everyone knows what that means. The ticket seller. Sort of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's sort of this this whole kind of idea that, yeah, anyone who seems naive is just bunging on an act and everyone's really a player. And the, the poor staff of Frontline are once again left behind by just not being quite as devious as everyone else. Well, the end credits, Dan, I don't know if you got much on this, Daniel, but I did some minor research. Uh, I, I will defer to your research because I don't really have anything. That's all right. Well, Nikki uh, was played by Rachel Davey. And when I try to do a deep dive, Rachel Davey has changed name to Rachel Kennedy and only starred in two other things. So that was really it. But yeah, there is another Rachel Davey out there, but she's a voice actor based in the US. This person is Rachel Kennedy, a totally different person. And certainly no relation to Gerard Kennedy, I'm assuming. Or Jane Kennedy, Kennedy. Yep. maybe. Yeah. 
the Kennedys. Well, there you go. There you go. So that wraps up Frontline Season 1, Episode 4, and the Champagne Comedy Podcast, Episode 44. Jeez, we're getting on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Middle-aged. Well, then, uh, so, yeah, that wraps everything up. And so if uh, feel free to reach out to us if you want to share any news or stories or little bits and pieces. Email champagnelateshow at gmail.com. Twitter at TLS Champagne, website champagnecomedy.com when it decides to work. Um, and also there's the – I'm sorry, Kim. It's not your fault. <laughs> That's it's, all right. That's the server. Uh, Facebook, <laughs> the Late Show page. And also make sure you subscribe to Working Dogs' YouTube channel as well. As we mentioned earlier, they're releasing clips of their archives, including little extra bits of the Late Show. So we don't have anything to do with that, but just will give you a plug on that. Uh, or search for the Champagne Comedy Podcast group on Facebook. It's on private, but answer the three questions and, you, and you're in. So as always, thank you very much, Alison, Daniel, Kim, and Tony for coming on the show and uh, dealing with all the crap, as well as thanking you, the listener, for downloading and listening. Also, give us a decent star rating. I can't really tell you what to do, but any... That's five stars. Five stars. Okay. See, Alison can, but I can't. <laughs> if you do that, they'll be, we'll be greatly appreciated. And, um, yeah, thanks so much for listening and downloading and subscribing. So I'm Matt, and thank you for listening. Catch you in the next episode. See ya. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Champagne Comedy Podcast, created by fans for the fans. For more information on this podcast, please visit champagnecomedy.com. Produced by Matt Fulton Productions at fulton.com.au. Dickheads and handbags. <laughs> as well was as... Was that a clip from Full Frontal by any chance? No, no that, was, that was Light oh, Show. yeah, sorry, sorry. Oh, what? Can't we believe just... We cut that bit out, weren't we? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I think... Oh, think was you you, you yeah, need was... to watch the series from start to finish. I, I've already done that. As, as soon, as soon as I can't remember everything. That's what Ross Warnicky used to say. <laughs> Season 1, episode 18 of The Late Show. <laughs> and he's not reading that either, are you? Yeah, he knew that off by heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah I <laughs> read, knew it off by heart, yeah. <laughs> Maybe uh, we just need to listen to our own podcast. Uh, that again. was your that was your border. It was yeah. it was my border. I mean, you know, border. if you're a nice editor, you could cut it out to preserve my I credibility. Will. <laughs> I credibility. Will. I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>